You're listening to Understanding the Law Radio with your host, attorney Peter Lamont. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Understanding the Law Radio. I'm your host, Peter Lamont. Today is June 12th, and we are going to be engaging or you know, starting our journey back to the week in review. Now, for those of you who were fans of the show in the past, you know that every Monday we did a week in review series, and uh, it, was, it was actually very fun, and I think that a lot of you out there really enjoyed it just based upon the feedback. We had taken a break from the week in review for a while, and we're going to be bringing it back just because so many people have asked to have the week in review back. So I'm excited. This is the first week in review back in quite some time. So I want to remind everybody that if you have questions or you want to talk about any of the topics that we discuss on today's show, you can call into the live program at 347-855-8831. All right, so today we've got a bunch of very interesting stories. Now, remember, Week in Review is a show where we go and we look at some of the most interesting, not necessarily the most popular, but the most interesting legal stories of the prior week. And today we've got information about Brock Lesnar and a lawsuit against him and the UFC, information about uh, Just for Men hair care, the hair dye, We've got a story about Trader Joe's. So there's a lot of interesting things on today's show, and I want to get into that. Before I do, I just want to remind everybody to check out utlradio.com. That's where you can find our extensive video library, and you can get episodes of all of these podcasts. And I think at this point, we're up over 250 podcasts. So you can check that out. Uh, We have revamped utlradio.com. So you'll see when you go to the site that it's streamlined and very easy to use, uh, easy for you to ask your questions and to get them answered or to get them on the air. All right, so let's dive into today's show. And I want to start with uh, Brock Lesnar. Now, everybody knows Brock Lesnar, either from wrestling, WWE, uh, or from the UFC. Clearly, he is a very popular character on WWE, and um, I think a lot of people look at him and they say, wow, you know, that guy's huge, he's an animal. Uh, If you remember back to his amateur wrestling days, he was a college champion, and he had a a book that was published, I want to say maybe three or four years ago, maybe five years ago, that that talked about his journey um, from amateur wrestling, college wrestling, into the WWE his relationship with Vince McMahon, uh, his use of performance-enhancing drugs, and then his ultimate um, falling out with McMahon. And this is before he rejoined uh, the WWE. Now, this lawsuit is filed by Mark Hunt. Mark Hunt was one of his opponents um, at the UFC. And the lawsuit's quite interesting because it essentially says that Dana White, Brock Lesnar, and the UFC acted in concert to defraud Hunt, who was his opponent, and commit a battery against him by a scheme to knowingly pin Hunt, or pit Hunt, I should say, a clean fighter against Lesnar, a doping fighter, 
to the wrongful benefit of the UFC, Lesnar, and White. Now, that's from the complaint. So essentially what's going on here is this guy Hunt is saying that Dana White, the UFC, and clearly Lesnar knew that he was using performance-enhancing drugs and that they allowed Hunt, an athlete who was not using steroids or any sort of performance-enhancing drugs, to compete against Lesnar. And obviously, um, Hunt lost and uh, you know, suffered some injuries, as, as you, know, you imagine occur in UFC fights. Now, as a result of the positive drug test, which came out of that fight, um, although Lesnar won, the win was overturned. Uh, Lesnar was suspended uh, by the Nevada Athletic Commission, and I think he was fined $250,000. So, you know, Lesnar clearly does not deny the fact that he was using performance-enhancing drugs. So what happens is the complaint was filed, and then the, the defendants, um, it's Zufa, LLC, uh, Lesnar, White, they file a motion to dismiss because when you, when you have a complaint, which is the way a lawsuit starts off, it's the first document in the lawsuit, you get the complaint. Um, as a defendant, you have two options. You can either answer the complaint with a standard or formal answer where you would admit and deny certain allegations. Maybe you'd have a counterclaim. You'd list your uh, list of defenses. Or you could file a motion to dismiss which essentially says, hey, you know, you failed to state a cause of action against me, and therefore this lawsuit's got to be tossed right now at its early stages. And that's what went on in this case. Now, uh, good news for Mark Hunt is that the uh, motion to dismiss that was filed by the defendants, by Lesnar and the UFC, in the U.S. District Court of Nevada was denied. And that means that the case can continue. Now, I want to talk for a second um, about this idea of a motion to dismiss so you get a better understanding of what it is. Uh, before I do, I just want to mention that Hunt is seeking compensatory damages, treble damages, uh, treble damages which is three times the amount of your actual damages, and punitive damages um, sufficient to deter illegal doping in the sport of mixed martial arts. He's also asking for the court, uh, the court for the defendants to expel their ill-gotten profits. So essentially, he's asking for, this is going to be millions of dollars. Uh, just think about the amount of money that the UFC received from the Lesnar fight. Um, and if you go through the complaint itself, you can see clearly, um, and as, as a matter of fact, not just the complaint, but a lot of the text messages between Hunt and Dana White or Hunt and Lesnar. And you can clearly see that Lesnar was a big draw for the UFC. Dana White went after him because he knew it was going to bring a lot of attention to the UFC. And, you know, it, it would be ignorant to think that White did not know or suspect that Lesnar was on steroids at the time that he brought him back uh, or brought him into the UFC. So that being said, um, we're not going to talk about the merits of the lawsuit today because we're going to see how this lawsuit plays out a little bit, and then we're going to follow up with it. Uh, essentially, all you need to know is that Hunt is suing them because they knew or should have known that Lesnar was using performance-enhancing drugs, 
and they did it on purpose to make a spectacle, at least in Hunt's, uh, you know, complaint of Hunt and to make the UFC, you know, continue to flourish, continue to be popular. But I want to talk now about the motion to dismiss. So with a motion to dismiss, when you're saying that um, the plaintiff failed to state a cause of action, you're essentially saying that none of the allegations are, are, are proper, right? The allegations of the complaint aren't either pled, pled properly um, or there's zero facts or zero allegations of facts to support the complaint. Uh, it is a relatively easy hurdle to overcome unless your complaint is purely just frivolous. And then, you know, if you've got no way of, of even pleading an allegation that could support the, the claim, you know, it's going to be dismissed. Let me just explain a scenario where it would be dismissed is, um, you know, if the facts pled, whether they're true or not, doesn't matter. But if the, flat, uh, if the facts pled, I am having tongue-tied problems today. Um, but if the facts pled can support the allegations and the cause of action, regardless of whether they're true, because it's not a, a test of truth. It's just a matter of do the facts support the allegations in the complaint is the complaint pled properly? Are all the elements of the causes of action identified? If they are, then that motion will be denied. Now, a scenario where a motion to dismiss would be granted would be in a scenario where um, you sue the wrong person. So you essentially uh, sue Joe Smith, but you were supposed to sue John Smith, and Joe Smith files a motion to dismiss and says, you know, you've got the wrong person, failure to state a cause of action against me because you've got the wrong person. That would be uh, a, a very easy win on a motion to dismiss. But in general, um, motions to dismiss are, I, I would say, you know, 85% of the time denied. Uh, and even when they are granted in most cases, the plaintiffs allowed an opportunity to go back and amend the complaint so that he can remedy any of the failures or shortcomings that might have been identified in the complaint. So in other words, if I have a consumer fraud case and I failed to allege one of the elements of that consumer fraud claim. So uh, for example, in order to have a consumer fraud claim, you have to be able to show ascertainable loss that you actually lost money or were somehow injured as a result of the consumer fraud. If I leave that out of my complaint and a motion to dismiss is filed, the motion to dismiss will be granted. However, in most cases, I will be afforded the opportunity to refile an amended complaint and remedy the shortcoming or the deficiency, and then I'll be able to proceed. So in Hunt's case, he, you know, got over a hurdle. I don't know how big that hurdle was. Obviously, anytime you're faced with a motion that could potentially dismiss your case, it's a big deal for you. Um, but in his case here, that motion was denied, and his case is going to be able to continue and move forward. It's going to be interesting to see 
how this case plays out because um, now you'd have to get into the real factual and legal arguments. He's going to have to be able to prove that White knew that Lesnar was on steroids or performance-enhancing drugs, that the UFC knew that they, um, you know, ignored all the, the drug testing requirements and did it on purpose so as to profit from the spectacle of this fight. Um, that's something that's going to come later. We'll see. And I would imagine that he is going to be asking for a significant amount of money just based upon the way that the complaint reads. All right, let's jump into Taylor Swift. Who doesn't love a good Taylor Swift story? Uh, the judge has tossed a slander claim against Taylor Swift in a groping case. A federal judge dismissed two slander claims against Taylor Swift after a former Denver radio host accused her of ruining his reputation by reporting that he sexually assaulted her. Now, uh, this individual said that Taylor Swift got him fired from his radio station, KYGO, in 2013 after she accused him of grabbing her backside during a photo op. U.S. District Judge William Martinez dismissed both Mueller's slander claims this week, ruling that penalizing Swift for reporting a sexual assault could discourage other victims from reporting their experiences. Uh, the judge said there would appear to be nothing improper about Swift or any person making an honest report to an entity with which she does business that one of its employees assaulted or harassed her. Uh, the judge wrote that in his 37-page order. The policy of the law should encourage the reporting of actual assaults, not attach liability to it, Martinez said. Um, now, this is interesting because... I would, as a lawyer, say to myself, why would this guy even bring this slander lawsuit against her? Um, it doesn't make any sense. But a lot of times I think people do things out of emotion. You know, this guy was probably very upset that he got fired and decided that he'd get a lawyer and sue her. Uh, obviously, it, it brought some publicity. And uh, it was most likely an emotional decision on his part. Because, you know, how could it be slander if she's alleging that he did it and she reported it to the station? I mean, it doesn't make sense. Now, while Mueller can't pursue the slander claims at the upcoming trial in August, Swift will have to prove that her team did not wrongfully interfere with Mueller's employment contract. Uh, that's a tortious interference claim. Judge Martinez found that a jury would need to determine whether Swift's team improperly applied economic pressure on KYGO to cause Mueller's termination. Now, that is different than reporting the alleged sexual assault conduct, however you want to phrase that. He grabbed her, her rear end, um, or allegedly did. Now, the question on slander is out of the way because there's, you know, the judge dismissed that. But is there some kind of tortious interference on Swift's part against this individual? Did she in any way say to the radio station, look, I'm never going to do another show promo beyond the air with you ever again. You allow this gentleman to keep working there. Who knows? And that's really what is going to be the focus of this trial in August. Um, we don't know whether or not they're going to settle prior to the trial. That's yet to be seen. But if it moves 
forward to trial, that's going to be the issue. Did Swift and her team put any pressure on the radio station to fire this DJ because of what he allegedly did to her? So while he did lose the slander argument, he certainly could hit on the tortious interference if, of course, he can prove that that occurred. Um, so that's, you know, an interesting, I think, element, an interesting uh, fact or component to this lawsuit that allows the lawsuit, obviously, to continue because he pled more than one cause of action. And that's something that I think is noteworthy. When you file a complaint, you should file the complaint listing as many allegations, facts, support. Now, I'm not talking about making something up simply to have a lot of allegations in the complaint. That's not what I'm speaking about. I'm talking about if you've got a, a case where, let's say it's a breach of contract case, um, likely you're going to also be able to bring in an unjust enrichment claim as well. And you'd want to make sure that you did connect all of the related causes of action uh, within that lawsuit. Because in his case, let's assume for a second that he only pled slander. That slander allegation was thrown out. So that would have essentially dismissed his entire lawsuit. Um, but he has also pled tortious interference. And so while the slander claims are out the window, the tortious interference claims will remain. All right, let's talk about Trader Joe's. How, how many of you out there are familiar with Trader Joe's? It, it's, uh, let's see, how would you describe Trader Joe's? It's relatively inexpensive compared to some of the, the bigger box supermarkets. Uh, there's a lot of natural and organic products, not like a Whole Foods per se. Um, it's kind of a fun store. And they, they you know, will typically have a lot of interesting items, um, natural, you know, I guess semi-good for you. And I think that they actually do quite well because every time I've ever gone into a Trader Joe's, regardless of what state I'm in, they're packed. A lot of people go in there for lunch. Um, and I think that a lot of people look at the Trader Joe's franchise as a, you know, relatively healthy alternative to uh, maybe some of the other foods that are out there, some of the processed foods. So in viewing Trader Joe's in that light, when people go into the store, I see a lot of people looking at the labels. And um, I think that looking at a label and understanding what it is you're buying is important. And that's why there are so many laws out there concerning the proper labeling and identification of foods, supplements, you know, anything that you're going to put in your body, you really should know what's in there and know what you're getting. Now, uh, in this case, this is a U.S. District Court case for the Central District of California. Um, and this is another motion to dismiss issue on a lawsuit filed by Sarah uh, Magier, who resides in New York. She had purchased Trader Joe's tuna in New York City through 2013. And uh, she purchased the tuna after reading the can's label, which she alleges represent that the can contained an adequate amount of tuna for a five ounce can. So essentially there are supposed to be five ounces 
of tuna in that can. She alleges that the can did not contain five ounces of tuna, that it in fact was underfilled and underweight. And she did this um, by having the tuna cans tested. Um, she claims that the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration tested several varieties of Trader Joe's tuna, according to the FDA standards for canned tuna, and determined that the standard fill of tuna within a container based on its pressed cake weight um, should have been a higher percentage. A lot of science in this lawsuit, and it essentially comes down to a consumer saying that it's mislabeled and that you don't get five ounces of tuna in the can. So, of course, Trader Joe's um, looks at this lawsuit and says, well, this is frivolous. This is completely bogus. It doesn't support uh, you know, a lawsuit. The facts aren't there. And so they file a motion to dismiss. Now, remember we talked a few minutes ago about motions to dismiss, and I told you that most of the time they're not granted. Well, here, what Trader Joe's did is that they looked at, uh, well, first of all, I have to say that there's a number of other cases out there. There is one against Starkist where the same thing happened. They talked about these underfilled cans. Um, but they're arguing that there is no violation of any state tort law, um, that, that they can't meet the burden of any of the allegations that they listed in the complaint. You know, that it just doesn't meet those elements and that there's no way, even if you try to remedy um, the complaint that you could fix this. And essentially, you know, the plaintiff here is relying on federal law under the FDCA. And Trader Joe's is saying, you know, there's just no proof that any of these state law claims uh, relate to the FDA regulations. Um, and in fact, what the judge ordered or judge uh, stated is that plaintiff state law claims are in reality claims of violations of an FDA regulation. And the FDCA prohibits individual causes of action. So an individual can't sue, only the FDA could sue. Um, now this, remember I, I said to you that uh, likely that they're not gonna be able to remedy this. The judge did allow a motion to amend to be filed within 30 days of the date of the order, whether or not they're going to be able to remedy this complaint to actually have a viable lawsuit is probably, probably something that's not going to happen um, just based upon the fact that their entire complaint was premised on FDA law and there's no private right of action here under the FDA. So they're going to have to either go back and think about some sort of consumer fraud claim, um, which, you know, I don't see it in the order here. I would wonder why they did not file a consumer fraud claim. Uh, but I don't have the complaint. I only have the court order here dismissing that case. But that's another interesting one because, again, it deals with a motion to dismiss. And this one is one of those rare ones that's granted because 
the FDA doesn't have a private right of action. And therefore, you can't sue under it. That's a scenario where the case has to be dismissed because you just you failed to state a cause of action, a viable claim that you could enforce. And, and so there's a good example of a motion to dismiss that is granted. All right, let's move on to Just for Men, hair dye. Um, believe me, if I had enough hair, I'd probably consider dyeing it, uh, but I just don't, and so I just don't bother with it. But this one deal, uh, deals with men's jet black hair dye toxic. The maker of Just for Men uh, hair dye uses endorsements from black athletes and other prominent African-Americans, and they try to promote this jet black division of the product or version of the product to African-American men. Now, that's what the federal class action alleges. It further alleges that the components or the chemical makeup of the Just for Men jet black product has 17 times more chemicals than other versions of the high, uh, of their hair dye. And this PPD, which is contained in Just for Men Jet Black, allegedly can cause kidney failure, asthma, vertigo, tremors, and convulsions, uh, according to the complaint. Uh, now, the complaint says beyond being a dye component, PPD is utilized and the manufacture of rubber tires as an additive to gasoline and as a photographic developing, who would want to be putting that in their hair, assuming that these allegations are correct. Uh, the complaint also says that the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission flagged PPD as one of, the only, uh, one of only five substances requiring the cautionary designation of strong sensitizer one with a significant potential for causing hypersensitivity. So significant, in fact, that the American Contact Dermatitis Society declared PPD the allergen of the year in 2006, according to the complaint. It adds that a scientific study by the Cleveland Clinic concluded in 2001 that the sensitization rate to PPD in black men was 21.2% compared to only 4.2% in white men. Nonetheless, um, the complaint says that the company knowingly designed, produced, marketed, and sold Just for Men products that were disproportionately unsafe and hazardous for African-American males compared to white males. Now, this is very interesting because um, the allegations here are essentially allegations of a federal anti-discrimination law under the Civil Rights Act and two California consumer protection laws. This is seeking a nationwide class certification, a permanent injunction, and damages for civil rights violations, unfair competition, and violations of consumer laws. Very interesting case because it's more than just a product case. This case is a civil rights case, and it's, it's saying that this company targeted African-American men and they sold them a product designed, you know, specifically for them. 
when they knew that it contained a significant amount of chemical components that were far more harmful than the components in the product that they were selling to white men. So very interesting, very interesting uh, to see how this is going to play out. Obviously, it's the plaintiff's burden of proof to show that this is, in fact, the case, that the company did target African-American men. And if they can't show that, then, of course, the civil rights claim, the civil rights claims fail. Um, but it's very interesting how they pled the complaint. We'll see where it goes. Uh, as far as the consumer um, product claims go, as far as the safety of it goes, that's that's challenging because you're going to have to be able to establish damages. And, and in this class action, it, it could be very difficult to certify the class simply because there are so many different variables with respect to the potential injuries that some of the users of the product could have um, sustained. You know, it, it's not like a class where it says, um, you know, you purchase gift cards from company A, and for every gift card that you purchase, company A charged you an additional 10%. That's a very easy case to establish damages because everybody who purchased the gift card would be damaged in the amount of um, you know, the, the overcharge or whatever it was. Here it's different because you're going to have people that had purchased the product but had no reaction. You're going to have people that purchased it and had a severe reaction, and then people all in between. So I don't, I don't know if this is going to be a certified class. Certainly, um, lawyers often file class actions and seek class action certification because it's a big draw. It gets a lot of media attention. But the reality of it is that these cases oftentimes settle prior to certification. Um, and I think that, you know, it's not uncommon for cases like this to not be able to be certified and, and be settled. All right. Now, Last night, we saw the Pittsburgh Penguins win their second Stanley Cup in a row. Um, truth be told, I was hoping that the Predators were going to pull it off because they had such a great season. It was kind of sad to see them lose, but, you know, that's the way the puck drops. Uh, now, I want to talk about former Minnesota Wild hockey player Derek Bugard. Um, if you remember, Derek was injured and you know multiple concussions the mom his mom filed a lawsuit um, because she alleged that the league was responsible for her son's brain damage and addiction addiction to prescription painkillers now uh, unfortunately it's a very sad story um, the Minnesota wild player blue guard had actually overdosed on painkillers um, very, you know, very sad. It was an accidental overdose. But his mom essentially argued in a lawsuit that had the NHL treated things differently, none of this would have happened. Well, a federal judge uh, last Monday dismissed the wrongful death lawsuit filed by the former NHL player, uh, Derek Bogart's parents, who blamed the league for their son's brain damage and addiction to prescription painkillers. 
Bugard, a feared enforcer during six seasons with the Minnesota Wild and the New York Rangers, died of an accidental overdose of pain medications and alcohol in 2011. His parents later sued, arguing the NHL knew or should have known Bugard, who they said received more than 1,000 prescriptions from team physicians, dentists, trainers, and staff, wasn't complying with with treatment. In a 20-page opinion dismissing the case, U.S. District Judge Gary Feinerman wrote that Bugard's parents didn't prove the NHL was negligent. He also noted they weren't appointed trustees of their son's estate, a requirement to sue on its behalf. But the judge was careful not to comment on the allegations against the NHL, which is currently involved in a class action lawsuit involving more than 100 former players. Feinerman wrote uh, that his decision should not be read to commend how the NHL handled Bugard's particular circumstances or the circumstances of other NHL players who over the years have suffered injuries from on-ice play. So here is yet another motion to dismiss today. This one is granted because, um, actually, let me take that back. It's not a motion to dismiss. This was a motion for summary judgment, a dismissal, a dismissal of a case because the plaintiff, A, had no standing because they weren't the trustees of the estate, and B, uh, could not establish negligence. All right, and let's wrap up today uh, with uh, a little bit of a lighter story. Anybody out there who is into photography, videography, or remote control toys, Americans no longer have to register non-commercial drones with the FAA, so that's a good thing. Um, If you recall, when drones first came on the market, there was no such thing as registration. Just get your drone and you go fly it. And then, of course, the FAA got involved because of the fact that it could interfere with other airplanes. It It was a safety issue. And they were requiring that everyone, whether it was for recreational or commercial use, register their drone with the FAA and pay $5. Well, that looks like it has been changed. Now, I think that there's still some discussion as to whether or not um, it needs to, to be relooked at and, and, and you know, remain in place. But as of right now, if you buy a new drone in the U.S. to fly non-commercially, you no longer have to register your drone with the Federal Aviation Administration, according to a decision issued by a federal court in Washington, D.C. The court ruled that the FAA's drone registration rules, which have been in place since 2015, were in violation of a law passed by Congress in 2012. That law, the FAA Modernization and Reform Act, prohibited the FAA from passing any rules on the operation of model aircraft. In other words, rules that restrict how non-commercial hobbyist drone operators can fly. Now, if a person buys a new drone to fly for fun, they no longer have to register the aircraft with the FAA. But if flying it for commercial purposes, so for example, if you are uh, a photographer and you're getting paid for your work, or if you're a home inspector and you're using the drone to look at the condition of a residential roof or or whatnot, uh, then you will still need to register. This all stemmed from a lawsuit that was won by John Taylor, a model aircraft enthusiast who brought the case against the FAA in January 2016. 
interestingly, since first opening the FAA's registration system in December 2015, more than 820,000 people have registered to fly drones. Now, one question remains is, will anyone who paid the $5 registration for non-commercial use be entitled to a refund? And I don't even think that they're going to answer that. I think they're going to take the $5 um, and be done with it. Now, I don't think we're going to be getting any uh, anything back. But it's interesting. Now, this, of course, is the FAA. Who knows if another governmental entity will get involved with monitoring drones. I mean, I think that there's probably a sufficient enough safety concern. I, I personally think that um, there's really no harm in registering the, the drone. I, I think that it was easy to do. It was a $5 application. You get a license number. Um, so I didn't find it to be offensive in any way. Uh, and, and like I said, it was only $5. So, and it happened very quickly. I mean, you do it online, you get all your information, you just make a label, you stick it on your drone, you are good to go. So, you know, for me, I, I don't really see um, a great benefit to not having to register it. I think that it did create, if you read the rules at least, some sense of responsibility on the drone user. Um, as drones come down in price, and, and they're now so reasonably priced. I mean, just about anybody could afford a drone at this point, uh, even if it's a very small one for $20, $30. The problem is that if you've got a lot of people using drones that are not regulated and they don't um, feel as though if they do something inappropriate with the use of the drone, if there's going to be some sort of consequence or repercussion, they're just going to just... I, I think uh, you run the risk of having people act in inappropriate ways. Now, this does nothing, obviously, to change the state of the law with respect to what co constitutes invasion of privacy or where you can fly the drone or how you can fly it. Obviously, you cannot go down to an airport and fly a drone near an airport because of um, FAA regulations concerning airspace. You know, and you also can't take a drone on certain cruise boats and, and whatnot. So that doesn't change anything. This is just about registering the drone if you are going to be purchasing it for non-commercial, just recreational use, then you don't have to register it anymore. So uh, you save yourself a little bit of time and five bucks. All right, well, that's going to do it for today's show. Um, I'm going to get smoother once I get back into this. Haven't done the week in review for quite some time. I'm glad to be back doing it. Please send me, you know, an email, leave me a comment. Let me know what you think about the week in review coming back and what you'd like to see the show uh, evolve into for the Monday show. I think it's interesting to do the week in review because we can talk about some of these lawsuits and legal issues that you don't see in the news all the time because if you go on something like CNN or Fox News, the legal issues focus around, at this point, President Trump um, and, and some other more high-profile things. But a lot of these, these lawsuits that kind of fly under the radar that get a little bit of media attention but not much, they're very interesting. And there's a lot of issues in these lawsuits that we can learn from. We can extrapolate some of um, – what's going on and apply it to our own situations, whether it's business or personal. 
Um, and you can learn something from it. And you can also see how crazy the field of law has become with people suing for just about everything. And that's not to say that any of the lawsuits that we've talked about today don't have merit, but clearly, I mean, you could be sued for underfilling your can of tuna. It, it can happen. And it's just interesting to know. Um, and that's why I really like the week in review. So hopefully you guys do as well. Let me know. That's going to do it for today. Make sure that you check us out over at utlradio.com, brand new website, simplified, easy to use, streamlined. You can ask your questions right on the site. Also, all the contact information is there, so you can uh, email me directly with your questions. We will be back on Thursday. We're going to be doing our business and legal Q&A. And that's how we're going to roll for a while. We're going to do Week in Review on Monday and then Business and Legal Q&A on Thursday. So get your questions in at the beginning of the week if you'd like to have a shot at having your questions answered on the Thursday show. Right now, we're um, going through a lot of the questions that have come in in the last week. And uh, we have a decent amount. So let's, let's try to get these questions rolling in again. And we'll do our best to get through them as quickly as possible and give you answers to your business and legal questions. If you have anything that um, we talked about today that you're interested in discussing, please contact me directly and we can go over it. Also, don't forget that when we do the live show, you can always call into the live show at 347-855-8831 and we can discuss some of these shows live on air and hopefully that will you know, start to pick up once we get the show rolling again. All right, that's going to do it for me. Have a great Monday, and I will talk to you this Thursday with business and legal Q&A. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Understanding the Law Radio. If you would like more information about the show, or if you'd like to take advantage of our business and legal self-help resources, including our extensive video library, then visit us online at utlradio.com. That's utlradio.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, and of course on YouTube. Now, if you have questions about any of the topics you heard discussed on today's show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, please reach out to me directly at pl at pjlesq.com. Or you can call me at 201-904-2211. Please also make sure to rate this podcast over on iTunes and share the information that you receive with your family, friends, and colleagues. And let them know about utlradio.com, your business success and legal information station. I'll see you next time.